Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, bringing you clear insight every two weeks in an age of increasingly dynamic risk and intensifying connectivity. For today's episode, we're taking a break from our typical panel discussion to bring you a truly in-depth look at the potential for unrest before, during, and after the upcoming U.S. presidential election. The question that matters the most here isn't the unrest itself, that's highly likely to happen, but it's the uncertainty of how that unrest will unfold. Our experts Matt Hinton, Allison Wood, and Aaron Schwerian join Stephen Antoine, the CSO of Yum Brands, to look at the measures that companies and investors operating in the U.S. should consider taking in order to protect their people and their assets. The following discussion was originally streamed as part of a live Control Risks webinar. My name is Matt Hinton, and I'm a New York-based partner at Control Risks. I lead our crisis and resilience consulting business in North America, and I'm currently supporting several clients on a variety of elections-based needs. Hi, everyone. My name is Allison Wood. I'm an associate director with our global risk analysis practice based in Houston. Hi, this is Aaron Schwerian, based in Washington, D.C. I sit on the crisis and security consulting team, where I focus on crisis management and acute crisis response. Hi, everyone. Steve Antoine. I'm the chief security officer for Yum Brands. Probably know us as KFC Pizza Hut Taco Bell and now the Habit Burger Grill. We have over 5,000 restaurants, uh, employ over 1.5 million employees, and we're in 150 countries worldwide. Aaron, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with you. You've been working with a lot of clients recently on this topic. What are the first one or two actions that you believe every company should take when preparing for U.S. election-based violence? In my mind, there are two critical pieces that organizations should address, and ideally as early as possible in the planning process. The first is a stakeholder analysis, and the second is a scenario analysis or, or scenario planning around that. So to the first point around stakeholders, this includes a deep dive on the universe of internal and external players who could directly or indirectly be connected to your organization throughout this sort of unrest. Typically, the main focus is on addressing employees, and and rightfully so, but organizations that are thinking about this more holistically are taking a, a harder look at how the different vectors of this unrest could potentially affect their people, their operations, and their reputation. So for example, some of those different vectors could include vendors, suppliers, neighboring tenants, business partners, those sorts of internal and external players. To the second piece around scenario analysis, I think it's worth using the stakeholder analysis that's done to consider different sorts of scenarios for the organization and to map out the key considerations around those scenarios. So building on Allison's overview of some of the more macro scenarios that are on everyone's minds, thinking through the more micro scenarios that could affect your organization. For example, what if any steps should be taken if an employee is injured, taking part or inadvertently involved in the unrest? What if someone within the organization is targeted virtually for comments that are posted on social media? What if a neighboring building tenant is physically threatened because of the work that they do and what does it mean for the safety and security of your employees? So thinking through these steps that your organization should take in response to these sorts of scenarios can be quite useful for the planning process. 
Conversely, omitting these steps and skipping right into the action, I think, increases the likelihood that you'll have to spend more time thinking about response in the moment that something occurs rather than actually responding. Steve, I'm going to build off what Aaron just mentioned there a bit. Once you've clearly identified your stakeholders, you've mapped out your various scenarios, where do you go from there? As you think through this, there's a couple of things that are absolute. Clear lines of communication up and down, verification and validation of decision makers, and and also what we describe as tripwires. And those are things that people can recognize that would give them kind of a heads up that something's happening. Most organizations have these in place to some degree, but what most organizations sometimes forget is to trust but verify. So not only do you need to identify all of the things that Aaron said and, and think through how you're going to communicate at all levels of your organization, but you'd want to test those now, right? Before you're seeing and dealing with these things, the easiest time to work through and refine your processes before you have to fight through them. Don't think about reinventing the wheel. Think about what plans do you already have? Have the conversations early, often, and test them now. As a follow-up to that, you know, as, as the largest restaurant company in the world, I'm sure you've encountered challenges as you prepare for this. Can you give us some insight maybe into the top two or three challenges you encountered and, and or still are working through and kind of what you're doing to mitigate those challenges? Well, you know, I, I don't think it's exclusive to us. I think, you know, we're uniquely built as we have a, you know, franchisee owner operator systems. We have leaders at all levels. But I think there's a couple things that remain true for most people. First, your, your senior most decision makers, they care most about what's most likely to occur, what's the lowest impact, what's the highest impact, and are we prepared to deal with it? Because the, you know, the reality is whether it's activism, an, an active assailant, or a Super Bowl victory, how you react to those events are very similar. So they, they need to know the what. And we also need to make sure that, that you know, we have level heads and, and we remain clear. And we don't let our unconscious bias and our fears cloud, you know, the decisions that we're making and the actions that we're taking because the, the emotional self and the logical self, they, they occupy the same space. And we all have, if we're being honest, our own vantage point and our own political vantage points that may creep into some of how we speak and how we address these issues. So your question was, what are the challenges we face as a large restaurant company? Well, regardless of the organization, we're all people. And you have to make sure that the leaders can, in fact, lead and empower those below them. We need to remain pragmatic and optimistic. You know, our job as security professionals is to instill calm because we'll be okay. And to make sure that we can provide the wins and the wares and the and, and the what's, you know, as, as quickly and, and calmly as practical. Speed to inform decision makers and then operators that they're making decisions and we're empowering folks at local levels to deal with what they're seeing and then communicate that effectively. Allison, switching gears a bit, two questions we get asked a lot are what should we be monitoring, right? What should we be looking at related to the elections and, and how long do we need to keep that monitoring going? Certainly we're getting a lot of questions about monitoring, so it's a very timely question. I think that when you are setting up a monitoring framework, it's important to think through both the macro scenarios that I discussed here, some of those key, I guess, dates and, and trigger points for where we could potentially see unrest, but then also think about what about that makes it specific to your organization and what types of unrest that we could see manifest under those different scenarios are most relevant to you. And this will, of course, be different for different organizations in their profile, right? So for some companies, 
there might be a more viable possibility that there will be unrest directly outside of their headquarters or key offices just by virtue of where those are located. For others, it may be that there's increased difficulty for employees to get to work because of disruption in public transportation or on blocked roads due to protest, these types of things. If you do have employees that are working overnight or late night shifts, making sure that you have the types of paperwork and documentation in place for those employees should uh, cities decide to institute curfews in response to unrest. And we do think that's more likely just because we've seen that used over the past couple months. In terms of how long and how frequently to monitor, I will say I think companies should be prepared to do some sort of monitoring over the next couple months. So, of course, the frequency and pace of that might vary picking up through election day and thereafter, and then maybe, you know, turning down a pace between when the results are out on inauguration day or kind of in line with some of the scenarios that I mentioned. And then I guess the last point I'll just make too is, you know, I think a lot of people, especially in today's tech-driven world, are looking for, you know, that next thing to tell them immediately when something is happening or get out ahead of when protests are going to happen. And, you know, in some ways we can do that by looking at the drivers that I mentioned there, tracking what's happening under each of those. We can look at past protest activity in, in areas of the country and draw some conclusions based on that. But at the end of the day, there are always going to be cases where something happens that we weren't expecting. And certainly uh, sort of the unrest that we saw in Kenosha, I think, is a good example of that. There weren't a lot of prior indicators um, to suggest that we'd see unrest there specifically, though certainly we had identified an incident like that as a potential trigger for unrest. So I think that's important for security managers to keep in mind is that sort of, you know, obviously prioritize where your planning is for this type of unrest, but make sure that you have plans in place across your operations and assets. Yeah, and I, I think that touches on, you know, an important point we talk about all the time, which is, you know, yes, you should be trying to do everything you can to minimize these sorts of risks from materializing, but you can't possibly capture everything, can't possibly address everything. So having kind of that all hazards planning, having that team that's trained and exercised and working that muscle memory to be able to handle a wide variety of issues really is quite important for the very reasons you just mentioned there. Aaron, I'm going to, I'm going to come back to you just looking through some of the questions here. A couple of different questions around covid and how does COVID impact this? And, and what should we be thinking about differently with, with this as it relates to COVID? Just really want to get your thoughts on what impact you think COVID has on preparing for and responding to this sort of unrest. To some degree, I think COVID has made our preparation primarily harder, but, but also easier. From early on in 2020, organizations have had to learn how to manage multiple crises at once. And obviously now the threat of worsening conditions around COVID as the Northern Hemisphere moves through fall into winter, coupled with this unrest and potential violence may strain organizational capacity to be ready to respond in real time every day for an extended period of time. So I think burnout is likely to be a real worry for many organizations. There are also some really interesting concerns around duty of care to staff as it pertains to the work from home environment. Some of those concerns we might have otherwise had around people's safety and security are, are to some degree mooted by this work from home posture. For example, for many of us anyway, less need to consider the risks around coming into and leaving an office and the potential threats that exist around the routes people take to get to work. Because for many of us, we, we aren't physically going to work, although I know that remains the case for many more. 
However, on the flip side of that is that the risks are geographically spread over a greater greater swath because people are are literally located all over the place and they're not necessarily fixed in one location. They might actually be moving over time as they work from home or from a friend's house or somewhere else to get work done that they need to. And so I think it's important to consider the balance between that duty of care piece that you had at the office and superimposing that on the work from home environments and trying to figure out ahead of time to some degree what that means in terms of how you would respond to support your your staff should something go awry. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, I mean, that, that the, the duty of care and how it extends is quite an interesting one. And I mean, we were on a conversation earlier today with a client and, and started tackling the concept of families. And, and is there some sort of duty of care now related to families since they're requiring their employees to work at home? And the debate around where do those guardrails actually sit? And are we going to take care of families if they get caught up in this? Or are we more focused on the impact of families getting caught up in this on our employees and how we handle it? Steve, I want to ask you a somewhat similar question to what I just asked Aaron, which is, what impact do you think other recent protests like like George Floyd have on preparing for and responding to this sort of unrest? Well, I think as you you know discussed earlier, the the convergence of crisis. You know, some cities and localities have had unrest since George Floyd. So this, in some cases, is a continuation, not necessarily an isolated incident. And as as we as security professionals talk through the why. Again, your leaders are focused on the when, where, and are we prepared? So as we do our our prognostication and our analysis, we need to think, well, what's likely to continue? And are there things that are likely to be different triggers in different localities? You know, but but I think there's something, you know, that's very important to consider here in that there's only really three types of crisis. So the details may vary slightly, but the but the big muscle movements are similar, right? There's a simple crisis, there's a complicated crisis, and a complex crisis. And if I were to break that down, I, I'd think about it like this, right? A, a simple crisis is think about you left the garden hose on at your house and it flooded your flower bed. I mean, that's a problem, but you turn the hose off and you know it, it goes away relatively quickly. A complicated problem is you know you own a Porsche and you're driving to work and it breaks down. And it may be complicated if you're not a mechanic to get that thing fixed, but you can call an expert to kind of fix that. What we're dealing with now is something that's complex because although we're talking about unrest around elections, I mean, there's a lot of things that are weighing in to the real-time actions that we're looking at. I mean, you, you mentioned COVID and then COVID fatigue. You've mentioned social injustice and social injustice fatigue. And all of these are playing simultaneously you know, as security professionals, when we're trying to calm folks, we like to prognosticate sometimes things that are outside of our control. And we need to be careful there of saying, well, you know, I expect this to end X because we're not really sure. But these things run together. And, you know, what's likely is if you have unrest, it's going to continue because one just is the straw, if you will, not necessarily the catalyst. In other places, it becomes a catalyst. I think Steve made a, a good point that a lot of cities in the U.S. have seen sustained protest movements really since late May or early June. So in many respects, unrest has been a continuous process. And certainly these cities, I think, are the ones where we can expect to continue to see protests. So a couple of ones that come to mind, um, certainly Washington, D.C. won't be a surprise to anyone, um, but places like New York, Chicago, Seattle, Portland, Los Angeles, the San Francisco, Oakland, Bay Area, Atlanta, and I'd say even sort of mid-sized cities like Minneapolis and Louisville 
are places where we would expect to see some unrest in most scenarios following the election. Under a Trump victory in particular, more of sort of the liberal left-leaning cities are where we would expect to see the most sustained unrest. So, you know, a lot of those will be among the ones that I named, but particularly some of those West Coast cities, we saw a sustained unrest following the election in 2016. So there's some precedent for that in those places, as well as New York and Washington, D.C., of course. All of those things said, I think that one of the things that's worth noting about the unrest that occurred earlier this year and that was sort of remarkable was just that the extent to which we saw protests, not just in major cities, but also in, in mid-sized cities and even small sort of towns. And, and so the more contested scenarios, I think we have the potential to see unrest in a broader range of locations. Close to 40% of protests and unrest actually occurs within a couple miles of city centers. So consistently we're seeing downtown areas be gathering point or convergence point for protests. So if you have assets in those downtowns or central business districts, certainly those are the ones that I would start looking at in terms of potential exposure to unrest. That said, things like state capitals, local party headquarters, potentially the offices of Congress people, federal courthouses, and potentially other federal court buildings, even potentially sort of FBI or immigration headquarters. We've seen some protests there. If you have any proximity to those types of locations, it's good to be aware of where those are. And those are potential hotspots. In terms of international locations, because I think we've had a few questions come in on that as well, it's worth noting that we did see some international protests in response to George Floyd earlier this year. And I'd expect that we'd see protests in similar locations following an election. So a couple of international cities that come to mind are places like London and Paris and Berlin. These are all places that have a very strong sort of culture of protest and unrest and where we'd likely see protests, particularly in, in the case of a Trump victory, but you know maybe some celebratory protests in the case of a Biden victory as well. So those are our locations that I would watch. And in those cases, I'm talking about protests potentially attracting sort of thousands of people. Beyond that, I do think across a wider sort of swath of the world, we could see more localized protests, probably focus more around U.S. embassies and response to electoral results. So that's, I think, a couple ideas of, of hotspots and areas that we'll certainly be watching over the coming weeks and months. Really hits on the, on the importance of geofencing your locations with, with these prominent areas and, and making sure you're thinking about them well ahead of time, for sure. With that, Steve, maybe I'll come to you. If, if we're expecting these protests to, to spin up in cities, both home and abroad, what are some of the baseline physical security measures every company should be considering? I, I think most folks would want to prioritize protection of life over the minimization of damage to assets accountability of personnel, thinking through staffing in advance. But we've had so many incidents this year that most companies have already dealt with a lot of these things in some capacity. It might not have been due to you know, election unrest or even civil unrest, but you know, the same processes exist even if you're dealing with a hurricane, right? You're either open or closed, you're boarded or you're not, people are coming in or they're not, you're worried about how do they get in and out. So, so the details of some of that, most companies have thought through these types of things because they've lived through them in some of our domestic localities already. But I think the most important part with regards to physical security measures is have the discussion because it, it depends is the short answer. It depends on the what and the where, but the how are, this, are, are basic, right? Life over property, 
and then minimize damage to property. If you have, if you're a cash-based organization or you have cash in your business, you know, think about the management of that. These are the kind of things that may be individual to a business and individualized per location because some locations have been victimized differently already, which is going to prompt their action or reaction. Hitting on the the where piece to your point, you know, Allison just hit on the fact that yes, there might be a lot going on in the U.S., but this is probably not a U.S. only problem, right? And obviously, you know, Young Brands has many international locations. How are you thinking about this any differently than you are in the U.S., if at all? Well, we always think about it, and I don't think that it's any different. I mean, you know, we have expats in these locations. We have spots that are known for their activism and unrest in certain situations. But we've seen this before. In, in 2017 in Peru, in 2019, there was a coup in Bolivia. In 2019, also in Venezuela, they had two presidents for a time. So other countries have lived through this in even more extreme examples than the worst example that was listed today. So we think about it in two kinds of contexts. What is the worst case scenario? And then what's most likely to to occur? And I think that's how security professionals just think generally, right? Oftentimes we talk about the probable and the practical. And, and what COVID has forced most organizations to do is include the possible. And typically that's that's sometimes how we're out of place is we don't think broad enough about what's possible. Because if we just talk about it, then we can decide well what our mitigation strategy is. Do we mitigate it, accept it, minimize it, leverage it? So yeah, I mean, it, this applies to everybody everywhere. I mean, we're the United States. We're the last remaining superpower on the planet. We have foreign actors engaged in our elections. So it, it matters to us, but it matters to everybody. It's a tough nut to crack, but I think the discussions are, to your point, geofencing and communication are the key. We have to engage now, we have to engage often, and we have to engage frequently to make sure that everybody has what they need and we're thinking in the right mind frame. Aaron, maybe I'll go to you next. You know, lots of people are asking about communications. Who should they go to? About what? When? How often? Those sorts of questions. Any thoughts on the best way to tackle communications regarding this issue? To me, it really goes back to the stakeholder analysis piece. I think it ties back really neatly there, determining the universe of uh, individuals who are connected to the organization and planning around how those communications will look, not just reactively, but also proactively. So thinking through what information your staff might need ahead of time, what information should they be aware of before anything happens. So I honestly think now is a good opportunity to be a bit forward-leaning and to acknowledge that this is an anxiety-inducing time on several fronts. Going back again to the duty of care piece and and work from home as well, the same way an organization may put out communications to staff based on commuting to and from work and changes in office hours, things like that in a normal environment. I think in a work from home environment, it may be for many of these days, the, the new place organizations consider giving guidance. And I don't think that guidance is likely to be as prescriptive as it would be at work, but it can still be helpful for your staff. It's going to be geared more towards helping employees understand what resources they have to support themselves where they are. So that might include You know, if you're living in an apartment building downtown, understanding what procedures that building has in place around emergency response. It might include encouraging folks to follow their local police departments on their mobile devices through platforms like Twitter to understand what's going on around them or potentially stockpiling different types of supplies. And I think, honestly, most employees would appreciate getting that sort of helpful information ahead of time. It sets up, I think, a two-way communication whereby staff are more likely to reach out proactively 
to let you know that things are going okay for them throughout the duration of this. Hey, Matt, if I could jump in right here too. You know, changing environments force evolution of action and thinking. And to Aaron's point, you know, I think we need to teach people how to think, not how to act. A lot of folks are looking for what do I do? And I think a broader conversation is how do we think about these things because it's slightly different than we may be used to. Most headquarters may be in one city and they may not have tentacles in every city. So cross-functional teams and building capacity in people that may not be intuitive is going to be the key to success. So just as much as how we communicate and arming people with where to find information and then how to pass and where to pass information, you know, we need to have conversations as to what's important. Because with elections specifically, these are going to be local responses. Not every security team has tentacles in every major city on the planet, or their tentacle might not be a traditional function partner. It may be, you know, an operator in a restaurant. We need to empower these frontline employees and frontline partners with information so that they're prepared to think about the how and if this, then that, what they need to do, but more importantly, who needs to know. Aaron, I might come back to you. Question for businesses that have employees still coming into the office and being concerned about having to shelter in place or potentially getting stuck there overnight sort of thing. Are we seeing companies stockpiling supplies, food, water, that sort of stuff ahead of a scenario like that? I think some are are starting to do, if they haven't already been doing that over the course of time, thinking about stockpiling. The other really is to put the onus, and, and to Steve's point, around teaching people how to think about what they can do to help themselves should something happen. So putting out communications on bringing an extra little bag into work that sits under your desk or wherever you are, that has an extra change of clothing. It has a little bit of extra water, extra food in there. Or if you have a pre-existing condition that necessitates you take medicine regularly, having a little bit extra of that on hand in the event you are in a location where this could occur. And an understanding, of course, that we never know ahead of time where those locations are. But if it's a concern at the company level, I think it's at least helpful to let individuals know that there are certain things they can do to be forward-leaning and help themselves in this regard. The other thing I think I would add to that too, and what we're seeing some some of our clients do is proactively insisting that employees work at home, perhaps the day of, the day before, the day after the election, to just avoid that situation altogether. Now, it's not feasible, obviously, in every sector, in every setup, but it's a simple way, especially if they're already used to working at home, at least partially during COVID, to avoid that problem whatsoever, you know, from the beginning, which I think is also important. I'm just going to shift gears Allison, I'm going to come to you with a quick question, whether there are particular businesses that we think would be targeted in these sorts of protests and why. I think on that, a lot of the, I guess, looting and whatnot that we saw during the last wave of protests was really primarily opportunistic and driven by what was in the vicinity of protests that were already happening. That said, I mean, I think if you, in those cases, Areas that, you know, just had items that were easy to grab or, or considered to be high value were certainly targeted by, by looters. Beyond that, certainly I would say we've seen news crews or, or media, I guess, stations may be targeted by unrest. There's been obviously a lot of polarization around sort of the way that the election is being followed and represented in the media. I'd sort of be on higher alert if I were one of those. And then I think the last thing that I've, I've mentioned, too, is for any businesses that are in proximity to Trump-branded properties, those may also be places where we would expect to see some unrest materialize, even if they're not necessarily in city centers, although most of them typically are. 
So I think those are a couple, I guess, categories of, of businesses that I would expect to maybe be on slightly higher alert in the case of unrest. Allison, I'll stick with you just for one additional follow-up. Law enforcement and federal immigration centers and what have you drew the attention of left-wing groups during George Floyd-related protests. In the case of a contested Biden victory, you know, what sort of sites can we expect the right-wing protesters to potentially go after and target? So we still think that government buildings are are likely to be potential targets, but particularly if the decision is made by courts or by state legislatures, certainly those are areas where we would expect to see more right-wing demonstrators target those types of buildings in the surrounding areas. I think that those are probably some of the key areas that we that we would watch out for in that scenario. But certainly, I guess the other one is just Democratic Party headquarters or cities that have some sort of active Biden campaign headquarters. Not every state or city has those, but for those that do, it's good to have an awareness of, of where those are because we would expect those to potentially be targeted as well. Steve, I'll come to you maybe for one more question here. Are there any public engagement strategies that companies can do to get on the protesters' quote-unquote good side? <laughs> uh, t- tough isn't the word for that one. I don't know. You know, there, there are different triggers. And again, this is a hodgepodge of issues that are running together. We'd like to thin slice it and make it easy and say it's just about election, but it's more than that. That's a very difficult line to, to, to thread. What I would recommend is that your communications team would probably be best prepared to handle the strategies for your organization in the positions you do or do not take publicly. That's how I would leave that. I think you're right. And I think it's going to very much depend on the organization and how public they are and, and you know, what the general perception of them are. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one for sure. Aaron, maybe I'll go to you next with a quick question around what kind of local and federal agencies should companies be engaged with to get greater situational awareness and mitigation capabilities as it relates to this? Certainly makes sense to, especially ahead of time, if at all possible, before these things happen, to uh, to have a connection point with your local police and fire departments and emergency management services. That makes sense. Also, local FBI offices, field offices around the country, having a touch point at each of those makes good sense as well. A few other things I would I would just be aware of are just some of the, the broader pieces around where their nearest hospital is to where they live or wherever the office is. Who do they know who could potentially help them get from wherever it is they are to where they need to go for this sort of thing? You know, I would piggyback on a lot of things that you're saying. Unfortunately, crisis has to be personalized before we think through some of these things. And an ounce of preparedness goes a long way. I think what civil unrest and, and COVID is teaching us, not just us as security professionals, because we live in this space, but, but our partners, our, our senior leaders, and some of our businesses even, is that you'd rather, in some cases, have it and not need it than need it and not have it and try to figure it out real time. So building partnerships and relationships that are organic, genuine, constant, makes these conversations easier. Because when we're rushing with two weeks out to try to figure out all the connections and synapses that need to touch, we may accidentally miss something. So that doesn't quite answer the question, but but I think Aaron got most of it already. And that is, there's, there's logical partnerships and things that we should just think through generally. Because the fact of the matter is, elections are every four years. This won't be the last one. As a matter of fact, the last five years, we've had 
at least an incident in all of them. Tornadoes and hurricanes happen every year. Civil unrest and protests happen almost every day in, in bigger or smaller capacities. So while we're focused on one issue and probably and arguably the most polarizing time in U.S. history, this isn't unique. It's not a black swan, and this isn't something that is Armageddon. It's something that we've dealt with just on a smaller scale. And I think this is the time to lean in and have those conversations up, down, and sideways with regards to what are the things that aren't just going to get us through today, but the next time this comes up, the next week, the next month, or the next few months. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. We'll be back in two weeks with another panel discussion. In the meantime, check out our episode library by searching for Control Risks Podcasts in your favorite browser. We cover everything from civil unrest in Belarus to the surge in domestic violence during the COVID pandemic. You can follow all of our analysis of the upcoming U.S. elections and find out how we're helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by stopping by at controlrisks.com. Thank you, and bye for now. Thank you.